We're going to go into Psalms, do a few Psalms. This is where we'll pick up right where we left off. In April of 2020, we did Psalm 35. That was the first message after the, the lockdown, the pandemic lockdown. And the last sermon before I went into Hebrews, and we'll pick up with, with Psalm 36. Next time we'll do Psalm 38, and the reason for skipping 37 is, if you'll remember, if you were here for the new year of 2021, Pastor Eli and I preached through Psalm 37 in a, song, in a, a, a sermon entitled, Godly Counsel for Living in Evil Times. So rather than repeat Psalm 37, we'll go to Psalm 38 next time. However, I would recommend you listen to that message, especially in light of what we talk about today in Psalm 36, because the theme, it's the downfall of evil, which is where Psalm 36 leaves us off. If you look at Psalm 36, verse 12, it leaves you with, there the evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down and unable to rise And then Psalm 37 opens with the very same thought. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The psalm tells us the wicked will be no more. The wicked will perish. They'll vanish away. And as we heard today in verses 35 and 36 of that psalm, he says, I've seen the wicked, ruthless men spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I saw him, he could not be found. Psalm 37 contrasts the righteous with the wicked. Psalm 1 is the model contrast, the character and practices of the blessed man on one hand and those who follow the path of evil on the other. And the Bible storyline as a whole is a contrast between two human lineages, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, Cain, Abel, two lineages, the righteous and the wicked, at war until the end, until God removes one from the presence of the other forever. That's a great contrast throughout the Bible. But the greatest contrast in Scripture is not found between or amid human beings, but between man and God. It is this infinite contrast that we see in Psalm 36 in this message that I have entitled, An Oracle of Infinite Contrast. Psalm 36 is clearly divided into three parts. Verses 1 to 4 is the character of those who follow evil or evildoers. Verses 5 through 9, the infinitely opposite character of God. And then verses 10 through 12, the urgent prayer for God's righteous and holy attributes to prevail over evil in the lives of God's people. And that's exactly how we'll exposit it. You see it in three points, verses 1 to 4, 5 to 9, and verses 10 to 12. Let's read Psalm 36 in its entirety to begin, beginning with the title, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good, He does not reject evil. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie down. They are thrust down, unable to rise. The book of Psalms is a collection of poems and songs that were written for God's people to worship him. They celebrate, they mourn, or they commemorate different events in history. They serve various purposes, both for individual worship as well as corporate worship in the temple. In the book of Psalms, there are are occasions when the title of the psalm gives us some kind of information about the context in which the psalm was written. But in Psalm 36, we have nothing about the context. Simply, it says the title, To the Choir Master, which tells us that it is a song to be sung, To the Choir Master of David, Servant of the Lord. Verse 1 begins with the words, if you, in the ESV at least, transgression speaks. Now literally, those two words in Hebrew mean an oracle concerning or an oracle of transgression. Now in Hebrew there are no distinctions between the verses. And even the title runs straight into the verses. So it's up to the translator to determine where does the verse start, where does the title end and the verse start. So if you just read this straight across in Hebrew, it's to the choir master of the servant of the Lord David, an oracle concerning transgression, within the heart of the wicked there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now this has been translated in different ways. Most of our Bible versions place that oracle of transgression in verse 1, like the ESV. Transgression speaks, or there is an oracle of transgression to the wicked deep in his heart. Some believe, however, that an oracle of or about transgression should best be left in the title. So the title would be this in that case, to the choir master of the servant of the Lord David, an oracle concerning transgression. Now, even if this is so, it doesn't help us much with knowing the context in which the psalm was written. It makes no mention of any particular transgression against David himself. Rather, sin or transgression is spoken in general terms. And it is thus argued by some commentators, and I would agree with this, that Psalm 36 is a psalm written by David, not as many of his other psalms a personal reflection about some specific uh, circumstance in his life, when he's running away from Saul or when he's hiding in a cave. But rather, this is a liturgical psalm. It is an entry song for worshipers who are entering the temple. In some cases, it's clear. In Psalm 15, for example, who may enter your holy hill? Psalm 24 is another one. 
where the character of those who may come into the presence of God and those who are excluded from the presence of God, who may come to God's holy hill, who may not, who is not invited into his presence. Psalm 36 is, I believe, this kind of psalm. And upon hearing the description of the evil character of the wicked, contrasted against the majestic and intimate as well as transcendent character of God Almighty, the worshiper knows the difference. And the worshiper who's coming into the temple is hearing this song, and he understands why it is that some are excluded from worship. He he defines the character of these evil doers. See, evil never really seems so bad to us until it is understood from the perspective of God's perfect holiness. That's one of the dangers of evaluating what is or what is not evil in our world today. Because the more that we steep in this world, the more that we live in this swim in this dark world, the less discerning we become about what evil actually is. And we need to go back to the word of God and renew our minds to define what evil is. The more that we are immersed in the world, the more our thinking becomes skewed and we start to soften our standard as to what is or what is not sin. And we begin to think, what's so bad about, what's really so bad about blank? There are really good people who are racists, right? What's so bad about racism? What's so bad about homosexuality? There are good people, right? We hear, we can, and you could fill in that blank, what's so re- really bad about blank in any way. The less we immerse ourselves in the standard that is God's word and live in and by the ever-shifting standard of man, we lose our ability to discern, to distinguish good and evil. We perceive everything through the eyes of what we immerse ourselves in. Brothers and sisters, that's just natural. If we're not immersed in God's word, even the evil that you know is wrong will not seem so bad. Thus, the psalm is an oracle. It's a prophetic utterance establishing this infinite contrast between a sinful man and a holy God. And as being sung upon the entryway into the temple, the worshiper can understand why is it that they're being permitted while others are not. So let's begin by looking at the character of those who follow evil in verses 1 through 4. As I read this, take note of the descent into evil, the descent into wickedness, how evil is first conceived in the heart, then it is advanced by diverting the eyes away from God and onto himself, and then it is manifested in the tongue through lies and slander and wicked words, and then finally in action. See the this descent into evil, verses 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed, and he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. 
So this voice, this oracle of transgression, whether that's in the title or in verse 1, the wicked is listening to the voice of his sin. It is as if sin is his prophet. He is so acquainted with his sin because he's lived with his sin for so long, it's all he knows to to commune with. And we know as human beings we are born in transgression and sin. And that due to original sin, by nature, we have desperately wicked hearts. We're all bent to sin by nature. And apart from grace, unholy humanity, verse 2, it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a very strong statement in Hebrew in particular. What it means is they don't even take into account the terror of the Lord. They don't tremble. In other words, they sin boldly. Now, this is the culminating symptom of sin in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, that catalog, if you want to turn here, you can. I'll just go through it quickly. But Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, where Paul binds everyone up together, both Jews and Greeks, under sin. And he says, there's none righteous, not one. There's no one who understands. All have turned aside. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he goes on in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So there's the mouth aspect. And then what? Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then the quote from Psalm 36 in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the basis. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the basis for their evil words and their evil deeds. The wicked, in Psalm 36, listens to the voice of his sin. That's his prophet. And then what? He flatters himself in his own eyes. He quiets his conscience. He deceives himself into thinking, I'm not a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a free thinker. I'm not like you Christians who are bound up and enslaved by rules and regulations. In the words of Spurgeon, it says, he, he said, he smooths his own path to hell. He thinks he's fine. He deceives himself. He deceives himself specifically that he's going to get away with his immorality. That there's no God or no person who will ever He'll, he'll ever give an account to. Realize these wicked men are in the dark. They live in denial of what is right in front of their face. The fact that they're sinners is clear by any objective standard, but they're in denial. So much so that they think that they're pretty good. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. So he is, in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3, Deceived and deceiving. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Here, here is a man who listens to the voice of evil. There's no fear of God. He flatters himself that he's pretty good. He thinks he's okay. But now his sin becomes manifested in his words. How does he act? How does he speak to other people? Well, he's a liar. He's a liar. There's hatred and malice in his words. 
He reviles and he reveals through his mouth the corruption that's in his heart. Because that's what Jesus said, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as verse 3 continues, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. See, thoughts become words and then words become action. You see the descent here? Now, humanity doesn't care much about thoughts and words. They really don't care about actions much anymore. But that used to matter, not so much anymore. But thoughts and words? Unbelievers don't care about those things. They don't think much about lying or slander or misusing facts. We see that in politics, don't we? It doesn't matter if you misrepresent your opponent as long as you win. Uh, And as far as thoughts, I mean, the entire pornography industry is supported by the idea that thoughts don't matter. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who rightly said, sow a thought and you reap an action, sow an act and you reap a habit, sow a habit and you reap character. That's the downward spiral of sin. First, listening to the voice of evil in your heart then averting the eyes away from God, and then it moves to the mouth, speaking evil, and then it engrosses the mind. Look at verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. Evil follows him at night to his very place of resting, where instead of resting, he starts to invent new forms of evil in his night meditation. And then what? Finally, he rises up in the morning and his first thought is not God. It's not about God. It's not of the things of God. But his first thought is, how am I going to resolutely carry out what I thought about last night? And you see that in the second half of verse 4. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Now, by verse 11, we discover, not surprisingly, that this evil causes the wicked to set his foot and his hand against God's people to destroy and oppress them. We heard it actually in uh, Psalm 37 today. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. So, brothers and sisters, never think that your sin is but a little sin. Whatever sin you entertain in your heart any unbelief that you keep in your heart, any thought, will, like leaven, grow and expand and ultimately take over and direct your actions. That's why 2 Corinthians 10.5 is so important. What's that? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Capture it when it's a thought. Capture the temptation when it is but a thought before it sinks into the heart, before you start to meditate on it, and it becomes a sinful act. A poem by Alexander Pope goes like this. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, and then embrace. What he's saying here is, you, might, you have to recognize sin as sin so that you hate it. But if you allow that to linger too long, sin becomes familiar, and eventually you accept it as part of yourself. Well, I was born this way. And then you embrace it. 
and then you even celebrate it. You can't be neutral. You can't permit space for sin or unbelief. Today, here, if you're here and you're not born again, if you're not following Christ, you may think you can remain neutral about the Christian faith. But that which you do not embrace now, will you will end up disdaining, you will end up hating, and you will eventually fight against it. This is an inevitable descent into evil that is described in these first four verses. That's why it is so important that today is the day of salvation, that today you repent and believe the gospel. Now, from this corruptness of humanity, the psalmist in the next uh, four verses, verses 5 through 9, turns to consider the glory of God, which is the infinitely opposite character of God. So in contrast to sinful humanity, God now presented infinitely magnificent and gracious. His steadfast love, his righteousness transcends anything of earth. Look at that in verses 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Let's look at these these four attributes here. First, the steadfast love, that's chesed in Hebrew. A reference to his covenant-keeping, enduring, everlasting mercies. The word appears over 250 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, over half of them in Psalms. God uses it to describe himself. In Exodus 34, he is abounding in chesed. The word was first used in Genesis 19 by Lot when he recognized God's grace in saving him before the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. David uses it in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and chesed shall follow me all the days of my life. And volumes have been written by rabbis and Christians as to define what chesed is. And the more that we learn about chesed, the more we realize that it is indescribable. It can't be translated by any single word, and even the compound ideas of steadfast love or loving kindness still fall short of what chesed is. The truth of God's infinite nature is demonstrated by the fact that this attribute, chesed, is infinite. An infinite God would have infinite attributes, right? And that's what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. Your steadfast love, that's chesed, your chesed, O Lord, extends to the heavens. And then his faithfulness. His faithfulness extends to the clouds. Faithfulness is emunah, a word that tells us that God never fails, that he is reliable season after season, morning after morning. He's faithful. His emunah is new every morning. And we need that faithfulness, brothers and sisters. His his faithfulness continues when we are faithless. Emunah is first used in Scripture of a human being, of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, where it says he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That emunah, which often translated believed or faith, is best understood as faithfulness. Emunah comes from the root Aman, where we get amen, 
And when we say amen, we're agreeing, but we're also saying this is reliable, this is trustworthy, amen, This I believe this, this is, this is a trustworthy statement. There's a difference between faith and faithfulness. If you like to picture a staircase, it's one thing if you're at the top of a staircase and you look down and said, I believe that's a staircase. It's quite another thing then to take a step on that staircase, placing your foot on the first step, and then start walking down. See, many believe that the idea of faith is merely believing in something. I see the staircase, I believe it. But emunah is when it's carried out in action. This is what James was talking about when he talked about faith. A faith that doesn't work is dead. It's not faithful. In this case, though, the faithfulness here is described, that's being described, belongs to God. And God's faithfulness extends where? To the clouds, somewhat below the heavens. Because in this life is when we need faithfulness. We face clouds in this life. We face afflictions in this life. In this life, we need God's never-changing emunah, his faithfulness, to us. Because in this life is where we face trials. And we need to know that God is emunah. He is faithful. Thirdly, we see in verse 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Righteousness is tzedakah. Tzedakah. God is righteous. He cannot lie. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? This speaks of his righteousness. His righteousness is like a mountain. What's about, what is it about a mountain? It's unmovable. God's tzedakah is unmoved and unmovable. Then fourthly, your judgments are like the great deep. Judgments is mishpat, also translated at times as justice. God is just and he deals justly with mankind. Now, we can look at this world, and we don't often see justice on earth. In fact, we more commonly, especially in our day and age, we more commonly see injustice than we see justice. And human beings would even go so far as to blame God for injustice. They say, why did God do this? Why did God do that? But God has a perfect reason, a just reason for all that he does. And we need to rest that he is just. His ends always justify his means, whether we understand them or not. We look at the wicked sometimes and say, how does he get away with that? How does he get away with such lies? How does he get away with such evil? How, how come the world, is it his money? Is it that he's famous? Is it that he has connections or influence? God will avenge. God will avenge. Chesed, emunah, tzedakah, mishpat. That's God's home run. The four bases of the baseball diamond he has all covered. His covenant love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice. It's a four-bagger. And it's easy from this to see how the psalmist would then have complete trust, complete dependence in his protection. So he says at the end of verse 6, Man and beast you save, O Lord. And then verse 7, The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. He's instilling confidence in us. 
Here's a God who, who saves both man and beast, and in particular, he protects humanity. Now in verses 7 to 9, we see the attributes of God become more personal. The steadfast love of God that we saw is higher than the heavens in verse 5 now becomes personal and precious. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God, to the children of mankind. I'm sorry, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How precious is your chesed, that personal, precious, steadfast love, which becomes his refuge. The children of mankind take refuge under the shadow of your wings. Beautiful language, isn't that? Uh, similar to Psalm 57, where the psalmist says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful. I have taken refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings will I take refuge until this time of trouble has gone by. Or Psalm 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Under His wings you shall have, you shall trust. So what is this idea of being under the wings, the shadow of his wings, uh, convey? It's God's protection. And in particular in this psalm, protection from who? Protection from the wicked that he just described in the first four verses. These wicked evildoers who are plotting against God's people, don't worry, God's got it. But it isn't just protection. It goes more than protection. Look at verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So it's more than protection. God provides abundance and even delight. River of your delights. What does that conjure up as far as biblical language? The river of God's delights. Beginning and end. Eden, Garden of Eden and the end. Uh, the eschatological aspect, and salvation. In Eden, in Genesis 2, there were four rivers that watered the garden and made it rich with vegetation. And then in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22 describes the river that flows in the new Jerusalem from the throne of God that waters the tree of life. Salvifically, water represents the new birth. It's symbolized in the waters of baptism that we'll get to uh, observe next week. Jesus invites the people to drink of the water of life. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In John chapter 7, during that water-pouring ceremony on the Feast of Booths. Likewise, God rebuked Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2. He said these words, my people have committed two sins. The first one being, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Jesus is that water. God is the source of life-giving water. See, and that's what the psalmist says in verse 9. Look at verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. And what David is doing, he's stacking up these blessings, putting blessing upon blessing, the protection under his wings, the abundant feast in his house, the refreshing river of God's delight, the fountain of life. He's just stacking them up here. And then he adds to that in verse 9, in your light do we see light. Light points to joy, purity, truth. 
Light was the very first thing God created, right? In Genesis chapter 1, before there was a moon, before there was a stars or, or the sun, he said, let there be light. And then at the end of the age, in Revelation 21, it says of all those lesser lights, sun, moon, and stars, you don't need them anymore because God, the glory of God and the Lamb will be the light. Think about that phrase. It's so poetic and beautiful. In your light, do we see light? What's going on here? David is using the the metaphor of physical light so that we would understand a spiritual concept. Light points us ultimately to the true light, Jesus Christ. What does light do for us physically? Think about this. Imagine you're in a dark room, no light whatsoever, anywhere, no window, nothing. And you just have to, and this room is filled with furniture and you have to kind of grope around to get to the other side of the room. See, we have good reason to fear the dark when it's utter darkness because it conceals all the dangers. In the dark, we don't know the way to go. We depend on light. We depend on our eyes, light getting into our eyes to avoid stumbling blocks that are hidden under darkness. What else? The sun, light, also gives life to our bodies. We survive because we eat plants that need light. Or we eat animals that eat plants that need light. So you don't have light, you don't have life. Natural light shows us the way that we should go. Natural light reveals the stumbling blocks that are in our way. Natural light gives and sustains our lives. Same way with Jesus, right? He said, of light, It shows the way you should go. Your light is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Light reveals what's true in our surroundings. Mark 4.22, he says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is there anything secret except what comes to light. And then light gives us life. 2 Corinthians 4.6, God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, David doesn't specifically mention darkness in this psalm, but the first four verses reveal the darkness that this this light dispels. And it is those who live in darkness. Jesus indicts a depraved humanity in John 3 by saying men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Because his deeds are going to be exposed. The darkness of this psalm is in the first four verses. It's those whose darkened hearts, foolish hearts, Romans 1. It's those whom the God of this world has blinded to keep them from seeing God's light. That's the darkness in the psalm in the first four verses. And it is into this darkness that every single human being is born. We are born into a kingdom of darkness. But behold, the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. When when Christ comes to those who are dwelling in darkness, there is incredibly good news. And that is that the true light who gives light to everyone has come into the world to dispel the great darkness. Jesus said it in John 8. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
Jesus is the incarnation of verse 9. In your light do we see light. In Christ we see light. Jesus embodies all that natural light, spiritually, but all that natural light does. He's the way. He shows us the way to go. He's the truth. He reveals things about our surroundings so that we don't trip over them. And then, of course, he is the life. Ephesians 5.8 says, We even have become light in the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. So his light is so bright that we actually become light by gazing upon him. And it's in this faithful, worshipful heart that David uh, writes this beautiful, profound statement, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Friend, if you're here today and you're still in darkness, the light has come. Why grope around in this life? That's your best hope in this life apart from Christ. Groping around in this life when you could have the light turned on. Come to Jesus. Come into his light and find that eternal life that only his light can give. God is the life-giving light of the world. You don't have to remain in darkness. Now, we've seen the wicked described in the first four verses in all of their evil. And we see the character of a perfect and holy God. Now, we are prepared to make an accurate assessment of the human condition because we see the contrast. Look at the infinite contrast of the base unpredictability and drooping faithlessness of Human commitments. Person says, I'm going to do this, maybe 50-50. Compare that to the infinite height and steadfast covenantal love and faithfulness of God that is new every morning and never changing. Consider the infinite contrast between humanity's slippery, ever-changing mire of what they consider right and what they consider wrong and compare that to the immovable mountain of God's perfect righteousness. Consider the infinite contrast between the crooked, shallow manner of human social justice as it only seeks a personal earthly retribution and compare that to God's eternal, everlasting, fathomless justice that is always fair. This contrast between God and man, so stark, infinitely opposite, Beautifully illustrated in, in the Gospel of John chapter 18, where one human after the next, Jesus comes up. It's, it's, it's right at his crucifixion. And first there's the cowardly Judas that comes at night, the one who betrayed him. And Jesus stands there in the garden and faces those who come to arrest him. Then the next morning or overnight, you have the fearful Peter who denies him. And then we see Christ later looking giving that look to his denier with love. Compare the robber, Barabbas, whose life replaced Christ. And we find Christ facing the cross willingly to be crucified in the place of sinners. Compare the spineless governor, Pilate, who washed his hands of him and how Jesus stands as the victorious king of a superior kingdom. 
Compare the hypocritical Jewish people who mocked him and condemned him to death and Jesus Christ who surrendered his, surrendered his life willingly even though he could have called upon the angels to save him. And compare the Gentile Romans who physically put him on the cross to Jesus' death that saved a multitude of Gentiles, beginning with the very Roman soldier who looked up at him and said, surely this is the Son of God. See that variety in John 18, that variety of human beings set against Jesus Christ. And it is always the character of Jesus that stands in stark contrast to the human beings. So that wicked, the wickedness of humanity is clear. There's no question, oh, well, maybe they're not so bad. It stands out. And on that day of Jesus' crucifixion more than any other. Finally then, in the last three verses of the psalm, verses 10 through 12, it ties together... Some have criticized this psalm and said, well, it's two, two different ideas that got stuck together somewhere in history. No. Verses 10 through 12 beautifully bring together these sections in this urgent prayer for God's attributes to prevail over evil in the lives of his people. We're going to see the steadfast love of the Lord that we just talked about and his righteousness reached a place of human need. Verse 10, this is his prayer, his urgent prayer. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. See, God, you're the source of this. If I'm going to be righteous, upright in heart, if I'm going to know you, you've got to do something. You, you're, you have to extend that steadfast love. You have to extend that righteousness. It's not, this is not a psalm to say, you're good, you're not. You're good and point fingers. Who's the righteous, who's not? No, his prayer here is, those who know you, these upright in heart, they need your steadfast love. They need your righteousness. This is you today if you're in Christ. Though his chesed reaches to the heavens, he communicates that to us. His hesed is infinite, but it's manifested among finite human beings. And the righteousness that the psalmist said is as the mountains of God in verse 6 is now here imputed to his people in verse 10, where he says, Lord, continue your righteousness toward the upright in heart. See, the upright in heart are righteous. We're still in need, although it identifies us as upright in heart, that does not eliminate the need for God's steadfast love and imputed righteousness in order to enter his presence in worship. Brethren, it does us good to be reminded of these things. We know them, but it's so good, it's refreshing to be reminded of these things. Because honestly... When you go through those first four verses and it describes the wicked person, do we not see that lying within our own hearts apart from the grace of God? Do, do we not say, after reading those first four, four, four verses, and if you don't, you're not getting it. If you're thinking that's the means of judge for you to judge, you're missing it. It's there, but for the grace of God, go I. And these two monumental truths, God's covenant faithfulness and his righteousness, his stubborn love, his faithful love that will never let go of you despite 
what you, what, what, despite the times your faith lasts, and then his righteousness imputed to your account, despite your own record, these are truths to cling to. Hold fast to them. This is a prayer that is in accordance with God, God's will. Look at verse 11 as he prays now that basically God's people would not perish. Verse 11. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. This is a prayer that the righteous would not be overwhelmed by the hand or subdued beneath the power of the wicked. Now, can you say amen to that prayer? Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. The only way that we can say amen to that prayer is if we realize that there are arrogant people, that they, that evildoers exist, that there's not this nebulous wickedness that's only spiritual, but there are the wicked. Unless you understand that there are both demonic and human forces that are aligned against God's people, you cannot say amen to this prayer. If everyone is just so good and has a good heart and they're right and they're okay, if there are no evildoers, no wicked, no arrogant, no deceitful, how could you say amen to this prayer? There are, brethren, human beings who listen to the voice and then follow after their sin until it leads them to resist the people of God. And while it is true, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers, those principalities and powers that we do wrestle with influence and sometimes even inhabit wicked people. And we we have to believe that, we have to realize that in order to say amen to this prayer. See, if we go along with this post-post-post-modern world's view, no standard of right and wrong anymore, no penalty for, for evil, because there's only shades of gray... You know, and everyone has a good heart. We believe in the goodness of humanity. Then there is no evildoer. Does evil really even exist? Or, or are these just misunderstood victims? They're good people. They're just misled. Well, perhaps. But that's not God's assessment of them. And we need to be able to assess them as God assesses them and allow Him to define for us what wickedness is. Listen, the world doesn't define who is in God's presence and who is not. He sees two kinds of people. He sees righteous and unrighteous, good and evil, those who know him and those who do not. And we are all here either in one or two, one or the other of those populations. And he does not permit one into his presence and he permits the other. The way of the wicked described in verses 1 through 4 contrasted then against the perfect goodness of God in verses 5 through 9 leave you coming away with the idea that there is no one who is good. And that's exactly what Jesus told the rich young ruler, right? No one is good but God. The psalmist understood this. Do you? Do you? Knowing the character of the wicked contrasted to the holiness, perfect holiness, we could say amen. To this prayer. And that this prayer, which excludes the, the, the wicked from the assembly of the righteous, also says this in the last verse that they will lie fallen, thrown down, and not able to 
rise. And we could say amen to that. Just like the martyrs that we read about in in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on the demons? On those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? God's righteous judgment, his tzedakah mishpat, righteous judgment, both saves the righteous with eternal life, but judges the wicked with an equally opposite eternal judgment in hell forever. And brethren, even when the wrong seems so strong in our world, the psalmist by faith puts his full confidence in what he does not yet see. Evildoers lie fallen, verse 12. They are thrust down, unable to rise. He's fully aware evil is in the world, permeates the world. Yet even so, he knows there is a consequence to sin and evil. He knows the time is going to come where God is going to set everything right and they will get their just due. May we stand with the psalmist fully trusting in God who is the ruler yet, though the wrong off seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. May we stand with the psalmist fully trusting this. May we trust, may his trust be our model for trust in God, even in this evil and adulterous generation. You know, we're assembled here in a protect, protected environment. We're experiencing the abundance of God's goodness and grace toward us. If you were raised in a Christian home, young people, you're experiencing the abundance of God's goodness and grace upon you. We're surrounded today as we worship by His angels. We're celebrating with Him. But there is a war that is raging outside. Evil is lurking in the shadows and it is seeking its opportunity to pounce and to devour with a hostility that is dead set against God and His people. But the day is coming when that hostility will cease forever. Satan and death and hell and evil and wickedness will be cast into the lake of fire forever and there will be no more any any longer, verses 1 through 4, no longer heard an evil word, no malice, no more lies, no more sin and no more sinners. For those who practice these things will be thrown down and not able to. To rise. Let's trust in this. Trust not only in his protection from evil in this life, which he, which he does, but also trust that he has blessed us, brothers and sisters, with delightful joy, abundant life, and light here and now. Daily he's protecting us from the evil one, leading us not into temptation, strengthening us, providing us with abundant delight in his house. So make your calling and election sure. Know that you are in him today, because you want to be on the right side of history in this one. Amen.